Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be here today, and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that was presented to us to help this young couple who are going to be missionaries in Turkey. Mark and Mandy are fully invested in the work of the ministry. I thank you for their knowledge and their zeal and their love for you and their love for the lost. And I just pray that as we have an opportunity to give and other classes have an opportunity to give, that we'll not only meet this need to provide for their language school, but perhaps, Lord, it'll be over and above and and abundantly beyond what they need, just as an expression of our love for you and our love for the work of the ministry. I pray for this morning that you would guide us in our time of teaching in Sunday school and in the also in the service with Steve afterwards, that you would open our ears and our hearts to your word so that it would apply to our lives and pray that you would help us have a good day and be back tonight for a good evening of worship as well. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Specifically, we're going to start a section today at First Peter chapter 3 that begins at verse 13. For the last several months when I was teaching out of First Peter, many messages, we were dealing with a specific section that we talked about at times that began at chapter 2, verse 11, and continued all the way through chapter 3, verse 12, that in essence was dealing with how do we live a life of excellence? How do we live holy lives? The call of First Peter is to be holy as God is holy. And as we were in that section that began at chapter 2, verse 11, we were really dealing with The concept of being holy, but in the context of life in a certain setting. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 stated it this way, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now there's a sense in which that is just an expression of the idea, Be holy as God is holy. Now, he's giving us an explanation that, number one, it will refute false accusations against us. But beyond that, some people who see us living this way, living this excellent life with these good deeds, one day will glorify the Lord. And that just simply is an indication that some people who at one point slandered us and mocked us will come to faith. They'll come to faith by preaching of the gospel, but... The idea of that whole section that we covered that ended through 3.12 is that we live a certain way, and then he gave a lot of context, how we live in relation to the government, how we live in relation to the employment relationship, our employers, how we live in relation to our spouses, how we live in relation to others in the church, and Jesus is always the ultimate example of someone who lived perfectly, even when he was being reviled and accused, he didn't respond in an ungodly way. He's our ultimate example. So in all of this, again, this was a be holy as God is holy. How does that look in certain contexts? Well, keep your behavior excellent. Here's what excellent behavior looks like. And there's a sense in which what we're going to be introducing today in chapter 3, verse 13, is along those same lines. We're still talking about being holy. We're still talking about living excellently. But what we have, starting at verse 13 
of chapter 3 and really continuing to the end of the book is a shift in focus. Now, I've said over and over that the ultimate point of the book is to be holy as God is holy, and I think that's right. Most would say, and if you think about it, there's a context for that holiness. Certainly, we saw some practical application of that context and all that we've already covered, but the context for most of the book is persecution. Is persecution. If I wouldn't expect you to remember it. I went back in the context of this and some studying I was doing for preaching tonight, and I look back at my introductory words, and if you recall, part of the reason why I picked the book of First Peter to teach is because of this theme of how do you respond in a persecution-type environment. And I think we're going to get to that point in my lifetime. Suffering for the sake of the gospel. And Peter's already mentioned that idea in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. But from here to the end of the book, this really becomes the primary focus. Here's just sort of a preview of some of the things that are coming over the next few chapters. Even in this first section, in verse 14, you see in chapter 3, verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. We're going to talk about this verse today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The ultimate source of those attacks is alluded to in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter is devoting, really, the remainder of the book, the overarching focus of what we'll cover until we're done with the book, is the idea of persecution, suffering for the cause of Christ. That he would devote so much time to this, I think, is indicative of two things. Number one, people that he was writing to were already experiencing it. That was a reality for many of them. But he was preparing them to live out what Jesus said was going to be the circumstance for all believers. In John chapter 15, the first part of verse 20, you can call it 20a, says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So that's what is going to be the focus. How do we prepare ourselves for the hostility that I believe will be coming to us? Now certainly, if you look around the world, there are believers who are suffering persecution even now. In China, in Iran, in Nigeria, in countless other countries, North Korea, you could go on and on. But in America, certainly those who truly believe what the Bible says are in a precarious state. Not because the Lord's looking away, but because the world and our society is increasingly hostile to our values and beliefs as they're drawn from Scripture. 
So, as I begin to introduce this section, and the first section is going to be from verse 13 to verse 18, and as we work our way through the book, we'll, as always, there'll be different sections, but the first section of verse 13 through 18, I've just come up with a simple heading that will sort of guide our study. Preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. Preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. And right now, as I've gone through and I've studied the text, I have six things written down that can always change by the time I actually teach all of them. But today we're going to cover two. And the first act, the first way to prepare for a life of hostility because of Jesus is this. I'll just say this. Be a zealot for godliness. Be a zealot for godliness. Now I'm going to read this section, verses 13 to 17. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So this section is going to prepare us for a life of hostility because of Jesus. And the first point is in verse 13. Be a zealot for godliness. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, I don't always talk about how things are phrased, but in the Greek language, the way this is phrased, it's conveying a specific idea that goes beyond a normal question mark in English. I don't profess to be a Greek scholar. There are many that are. I studied enough in seminary to do what I had to do. But there's two things that don't jump out in the version that I read. I read from the New American Standard. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The first thing that jumps out is there's a connecting particle that is not shown in English, sort of a conjunction. Other versions, if you have the ESV, you see now who. The New King James says and who. The whole point is that word just makes sure that even though we're going into a new topic, it's building off of what just occurred. That's quite often the case of Scripture. And if you recall, last time we taught, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, Peter was quoting from an Old Testament passage. From Psalm 34, 12 to 16 was the source of it. But if you look through there, he's talking about a certain type of living. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace, pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. So when he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Part of what he's doing is he's building back with that connecting particle, that conjunction. He's building back and saying... If you're living out what that psalm talks about, who's going to harm you? But the question is structured in a particular type of conditional clause that says more than just what we would see. The idea in the original language is that the answer to the question is no one. 
Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The idea and the way this is structured is basically saying you won't be hurt. Now that's a challenging statement and I'll come back to that. But it seems at first inconsistent with what Jesus said. You will face persecution. It tripped me up a little bit, but I believe I can sort through things. So who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? He's basically saying, look, if you prove zealous for what is good, you're in good shape. It's not an absolute truth. But what he's saying is in general, even in a fallen world, even in persecution and hostility around you, even if things are bad, normally if you're proving zealous for what is good, you're probably not going to get the same flack as other people. Now we say prove zealous, the actual phraseology is saying if you're a zealot for the good. We understand zeal. Someone who's a zealot, we think they're sort of a little bit crazy. A zealot is hardcore. Certainly there was a particular context from the Jewish nation, zealots. Even there's reference to so-and-so, the zealot. They were a particular sect that were trying to defend Judaism against the Romans. But in our context, we still understand the meaning. The idea is just someone who is relentlessly pursuing good. And when I say good, not trying to earn salvation, it's just producing the fruit of the Spirit, doing good works, which God prepared beforehand for those that he called. And Peter is stating that if you're obeying the two greatest commandments, sort of summarizing it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, if you're doing that in general, that's not what's going to call attention and persecution down on you. If your passion is to live holy, quite often even the sinners of the world will leave you alone. Now, that he stating it this way does not in any way create an absolute. That if only you do this, you'll never be bothered. Jesus refutes that in and of himself. In Acts Chapter 3, for example, they talk about what happened to Jesus. Verse 14, But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So ultimately, yes, believers can be killed for doing what is right. Jesus was killed for doing what was right. And Jesus' example in chapter 2 when he was, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's in chapter 2, verse 22. And while being reviled, 23, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he had no threat. So, Peter isn't saying that that never occurs. In fact, we'll see in the next verse, he tells you how to deal with it when it occurs. But what he is saying is this. In general, if you're keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles... You may get some flack, but in general, that's a good thing to do because it will reduce the number of people that want to attack you. doesn't eliminate it, but it will make it less likely that you're subject to attack. I think we all cringe when someone who is a believer falls publicly. 
Why? Because everybody says, see, that proves what we always knew. You're a hypocrite. Well, we all struggle with hypocrisy. If we didn't, that would mean we never sinned. But the point is, we should be preparing our hearts to be zealots for Jesus Christ. Not just in our verbal pronouncements and our willingness to talk, although that's very important, but also in terms of how we live. So Peter's opening challenge to us, who's going to hurt you if you're doing the right thing, causes a question for us to ponder and evaluate. Does your life look any different from the unbelievers you know? Say it another way, if the people you know outside of church were asked, would they describe you as a zealot for Jesus Christ? A fanatic for Jesus. Not because you wear a wig and run around at sporting events. That dates us going way back. But because you are so relentlessly kind. And so relentlessly godly. And so relentlessly gentle. And so relentlessly peaceful. That they can't help but say something's different. If we realize that's not the case, then the point is not to beat ourselves up. The point is to repent and do some self-examination. Because we should be different. It's a challenge for me always to ask myself these questions. My life at Lakeside is different than all the rest of my life. I've been here for 11 years. I'm going to turn 52. But the first 40 years of my life, I wasn't a pastor. So when I came to faith, nobody was looking at me as a pastor. I was just a young, prideful, arrogant lawyer. And my life had to change. And by God's grace, it did. But I still remember something that my best friend, and by God's grace, we're still best friends, even though I've witnessed to him for years, and he still doesn't believe, but I still pray for him. But I remember him coming to me one day and he was like, what is wrong with you? Because we went to law school together. We met our first semester of law school within a couple of weeks. He and I worked together. We were on track to get rich together. That was our life. We were looking at cars at the same time. We got married close to the same time. We were on the same pace and he's like, something happened. You went off the deep end. I don't understand it. But I remember then thanking the Lord for that. Because I wasn't trying to do that. But when I realized I can't curse anymore. I can't lie anymore. I can't go out and get drunk anymore. I can't do these things anymore. An unbeliever looked and like, well, that's weird. But praise the Lord. And I pray some of you have known that. And if you came to faith at an early age, that's harder to do. But you can still do it. Maybe most people have always known you as a kind person. That's, you know, some of the family and friends I pray for are the nicest people. From a worldly standpoint, my friend who's an unbeliever who said that to me is a lot nicer than I am. (laughs) But at the end of the day, look at your life. Do people recognize you as being a zealot for the Lord? Again, not from protesting and picketing and screaming at people and screaming about life. 
But because what they see in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that can only be described as the fruit of the Spirit. So as we prepare for times that I feel in my lifetime and many of your lifetimes will be increasingly hostile to those who are truly following the gospel. Again, I don't think it'll be hostile to people called Christians. I think it'll be hostile to people who are actually trying to apply biblical ethics and morality and that don't explain away what's in the Bible. As you prepare for a life that could be increasingly hostile, be a zealot for godliness. And second is this, embrace the blessings of hostility. Embrace the blessings of hostility. Now, I phrased the overarching aspect of preparing for a life of hostility. And the idea with all of these things is we're taking steps before it happens so that when it does happen, we're not caught off guard. You know, last year when that hurricane was coming through, we were all scrambling to get ready. I mean, you look at the news and there's not a piece of plywood from here to Alabama because it was all gone. I still remember I was telling the story for another reason, but being out putting up the plywood on my house and people stopping by wanting to buy it from me and me having to say, I'm sorry, I've only got enough for me. It's a little bit late to prepare for the hurricane the day before it hits. Same way with hostility. You need to be preparing ahead of time. And one of the things that we need to prepare ourselves is to think rightly about what persecution actually is. To think rightly about how that hostility that may come our way should be viewed. Verse 14, Peter continues with his phraseology. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Now what Peter has just done is he's made it clear that if you are a zealot for godliness... People being upset and angry with you to the point of persecuting you would be more of an exception than a rule. But right here he says, but even if it happens, because it will happen to some. It happened to Jesus. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, that's a key point. There's a lot of suffering that is not for the sake of righteousness. Sometimes we suffer because we do dumb things. We do. Sometimes we suffer because we do wrong things. That's what verse 17 is about. Sometimes we suffer for doing wrong. So not all suffering is for the sake of righteousness. But, if that is the suffering, meaning the reason you're suffering is because you stood up for the gospel. Because you didn't bend when it comes to Jesus because you were so unrelentingly godly that unbelievers irrationally attacked you for your goodness, for your following Christ, even if that should happen, you are blessed. That's sort of the starting point. You hit the brakes and you honk the horn and catch everybody's attention because we spend most of our time wanting to avoid any type of suffering. I certainly do. We don't want 
to be persecuted. We don't want those things. And I'm not suggesting that you go out and look for a way to cause trouble. We're supposed to be at peace. If it's possible with us, be at peace with all men. But the point is, we need to know if persecution comes because we're following the Lord, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a blessing. You are blessed. I think that's what we all want, the blessing of the Lord. The phraseology here has the idea of being happy. It doesn't mean you're enjoying suffering, but what it does mean is that you have an internal compass set towards the Lord that says, thank you, Lord. I know I'm blessed. It's reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Peter's not coming up with something new. He's just repeating what Jesus said, in essence. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. That's the sake of righteousness. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is exactly what Peter's trying to communicate to us. He's reminding his hearers, he's reminding us of the very words of Jesus. That when hostility because of the gospel is coming your way, it's not a sign that God is angry with you. It's a sign that God is allowing you to be blessed. Your reward in heaven is great when you're standing and enduring it in the proper context for the proper reasons. And he's telling us, even when the world comes at you, don't be dissuaded from continuing in your course of proper conduct. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Peter is loosely, the experts would say, Peter's loosely quoting an Old Testament text found in Isaiah. And he's taking this particular text and he's providing a different, slightly different context for it. The quotation is from the general area of Isaiah chapter 8. I've got marked in my notes 11 to 13. The actual words are closer to the end of 12 and 13. But the point is that section of Isaiah says this, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call as conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. So when Peter says, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, he's basically saying the same thing. Don't worry about what the world's doing. Do not fear their intimidation. The literal, if you literally translated it, would be, fear not their fear. And the idea is that those who are coming against you because they're irrationally enraged by your goodness, they hate, it seems, you and your living for Christ. What they really hate is Christ. They see Christ in you and it enrages them. But they're probably going to threaten you. 
They're probably going to try and make you fearful. And Peter's just saying, don't let them stop you from doing what you're doing. Keep going. I mean, the Lord's blessing you. You are blessed if this occurs. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't let them cower you into a corner because you're so fearful of what they'll do. Recognize you're blessed. Keep pressing forward. Do not be troubled as closely related with this. It has the idea of what's going on in your heart. We can get agitated. We can get stirred up. Our feelings can be tossed about emotionally. He's saying don't let that happen. As I was preparing this, words of Jesus jumped out at me. In John chapter 14, verse 27. Now, the words jump out at me, then I have to go look up where the words come from. So I don't want you to think that I've just got this super recall. Remember the words. I have to go find out where are those words. But Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's what Peter's saying. If we know hardship for the sake of righteousness is a blessing, why would we fear it? Why would we be intimidated? Why would we cower? We shouldn't. In fact, we should embrace it and say, thank you, Lord. We should embrace the hostility knowing God is using it for our good. And the Bible conveys this message. James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James wasn't talking uniquely and only about persecution, but that would fit within the idea of various. So for us, we just need to prepare our mindsets. In my career as a lawyer, and I worked in California, if, if you don't know that, you can't find a more liberal state. I praise the Lord for that state. I was saved there. It was a great seminary that taught me the word of God. There were pastors that taught me. There were godly men that were just lay people that discipled me and poured into Debbie and I. So my lack of affection of California doesn't mean I wasn't blessed greatly by God in California. But in all the years that I was there, interacting with Christians, and a lot of Christians like at Lakeside, they know I'm a lawyer and they came and asked me questions. Very seldom did I ever see anybody that was truly persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Sometimes people thought they were. I'll use an illustration. Obviously no names or anything. You know, somebody would say, well, they won't let me read my Bible at my desk. They're persecuting me. And it's like, well not persecuting you while you're at your desk you're supposed to be working <laughs> now you talk to me on your lunch break if they won't let you that's another discussion but the fact that they want you to work and not become a bible student that's not persecution you're just being lazy and a bad employee but i could see that the tide was changing legally and i know that it has changed greatly in that state 
I'm still a licensed attorney, by the way. I still have a license. I, I'm inactive. I don't want to pay the extra dues, but I'm still a licensed attorney in California. I fully expect at some point they're going to pass a law that says to be a licensed attorney, you can't affiliate with groups that are hostile because of LGBT and keep filling in the blanks. Joining a church, that's what we, that's what we fit in. So, so I don't doubt persecution's coming. I see it. I know the landscape. But the point for us is not to spend our time saying, woe is me and I'm guilty of it. The point of us is not to take up arms and barricade ourselves in our church and start fighting the world. We just keep living our lives being zealous for the good. And if the persecution comes, we certainly we can vote. We can exercise our legal rights. But the worst thing that could happen to us is not persecution for the sake of righteousness. In fact, that's a blessing. I'll probably come back to it over and over as we continue through the rest of 1 Peter. But I can't cover something like this without Romans 8.28 going through my head. And that one I do know where it is. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We shouldn't fear persecution. When it comes to us, we should embrace the blessings of hostility. Let me close our time this morning in prayer, and we'll pick up again next week. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the brothers and sisters that I see week after week in this class. Lord, help us apply the truth. Help me apply it in my life. Help each one that's hearing my voice apply it in their lives. Lord, I thank you that you're long-suffering with us, that you're patient with us. Every one of us at some point has blown it. Every one of us at some point has not been a zealot for what is good. Every one of us at some point has thought wrongly about the possibility of persecution. Lord, help us to think rightly and help us to live rightly. We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.